In your corner. You want to reach out anytime. It's 1833 in your corner and uh, online as well. Help at inyourcorner.ca. Lots to get through today. We have our special guest, Christopher Williams, who's a uh, PI. That is coming up in just a bit. Do not miss this. This is going to be uh, fantastic, guys. That's uh, later in the second and third segment of the show. But first, as we always start out, week that was. Savan, what do you got going on, pal? John, let me read an email that I received this past week. The subject line of that email was help in capital mm. letters. And this came from a lady who uh, wrote the following. I appealed my LTD claim twice and was denied. I had a head injury where I was hit in the head twice within two minutes. I was denied because I, quote, should have been better, according to the LTD insurer, in two to four months. I did try to return to work upon my doctor's and therapist's suggestion, but it made things worse. I started to experience anxiety and depression and PTSD symptoms, according to my doctor. At this time, it was suggested that I take medication that I did not want to take because I had seen it change my sibling in a negative way forever. And then I was denied because I was non-compliant. There are so many reasons they use against people to deny them. I wish I had known that I shouldn't appeal and go straight to a lawyer. In hindsight, I can see the fear-mongering that the LTD company showed me by discouraging me to find a lawyer. I feel that my case has so many things that were done wrong, such as not being afforded the opportunity for early intervention being denied returning to work by my employer because they couldn't accommodate my return to work plan three times, but they finally did comply on the fourth try to the same plan. And then she asks, do I have a case? So let's unpack this. This is, and I'm going to get James's thoughts as well. There are so many things here. Now she's talking about fear mongering by insurance companies. You know, what I see day in and day out uh, and our team in general sees at the office are people who feel helpless and they feel hopeless against these mammoths sized insurance Mm -hmm. companies who tell them you have no case. And what do people do? They appeal these decisions, not realizing that these appeals are internal processes, right? As soon as the insurance company tells you, you have no claim, don't bother with an appeal. An appeal is you basically asking them again to reconsider your decision. There is no leverage that you have against them. What do we do uh, on our end, if you come to us and we, we help you, is we start a legal claim. And by starting a legal claim, we are now exerting real pressure on the insurance company because now the ultimate decision of whether or not you have a case or not does not rest with them. It right. rests with a court if this ever went to court. And of course, most of these cases never go to court because insurance companies, once you start that legal process, are very, very interested in resolving these cases. Now, there is another thing that she mentions here. She talks about the employer. Again, this is something we've spoken about before on the show. And that is that most people, a lot of people, I would say, who contact us with a disability claim also have questions, concerns, and problems with their employer. Their employer firing them when they're disabled. Their employer telling them, you have to come back to work in conjunction with the insurance company telling them you have to go back to work, right? And this is, again, something that we do at the firm. We have employment lawyers that deal with the employment side. And so it's very important that when people are experiencing these kinds of problems, that they reach out to us so that we can actually answer their questions and help them on all of these fronts. What do you think, James? Well, there's a lot of misunderstanding um, and mystery around long-term disability benefits. And if you listen to this show, it can be complicated. There are lots of parts of long-term disability law that is quite complicated. But one thing that isn't complicated is for me to determine whether or not a potential client has a good claim. That's actually a pretty easy thing to determine. And the criteria for that is very simply, are you seeing an appropriate doctor and does that doctor support that you are not able to work? It's as simple as that. If the answer to those two questions are yes, then I think you have a claim. Hmm. 
Now, there is a lot of other details that need to be worked out. There, you know, we have to review the file and see what the insurer has done or has not done. But in terms of determining whether or not there is a claim there, those are the only two questions I really need to answer. And it seems in this particular case, the answer is yes to both. You want to reach out, it's uh, 1-833-IN-YOUR-CORNER, help at inyourcorner.ca. And a reminder, In Your Corner on TV, Global TV, happens Sunday mornings at, uh, at 8.30 a.m. What do you got going on over there, pal? One thing I would like to do on an ongoing basis at the beginning of the show is talk about misinformation, as I just did with determining whether or not you actually have a valid claim. Another thing that comes up often, and I'm sure Savon will tell you the exact same thing, when we see clients, a lot of the time they're somewhat hesitant to start the legal process because they're concerned, understandably, that if they start a lawsuit, they bring a legal claim, they're not going to be able to go back to work. That is what a lot of people believe. The truth of the matter is that is not so. If you are not able to work right now and you bring a legal claim to try and recover disability benefits that have been denied or cut off, great. If six months down the road your health improves and you are able to go back to work, your doctor says you can go back to work, there's absolutely no reason you can't do so. I tell every single one of my clients exactly that. I tell them, if your health improves, you're going to do much better going back to work because disability benefits typically pay between 60 and 70% of your income. If you're working, you're getting 100% of that. You're not getting a fraction of it. You don't have to pay legal fees. You're getting 100% of that. So if you're able to go back to work, even if you have an ongoing legal claim, you should do so. Will it have an impact on your claim? Of course it will. If you're able to successfully return back to work, you're not going to have a claim for any future benefits. But so what? You're working. That's great. And in fact, it actually makes your claim easier to resolve. If you have returned back to work and we're only arguing about the six months or year that you were off, it becomes much easier to approach the insurance company and say, look it, this was the time period that my client was off. Here are the medical documents supporting why he or she was off. Let's get it done. Two more points to expand on that, John. In many instances, people try to go back to work and then they fail. They're unable to. Again, that makes their claim that much stronger because now they've shown that they've legitimately tried to go back to work. To mitigate. The insurance Mm -hmm. company can't now say you've never tried to to go back to work. Uh, The second point that I want to make, and this is really important, there are many lawyers out there who will actually advise their clients to stay off work. And that's in the context not only of LTD claims, but in the context of personal injury claims, slip and falls, car accidents, etc. Why? Because the lawyers think that by saying that to you, you are then going to inflate your claim. The value of your claim, the settlement value will be higher. Here's the problem. And now I'm speaking as someone who used to do defense, who used to protect insurance companies in the past. We can see through that. Lawyers can see through that. Insurance companies can see through mm-hmm. that. And what happens is that if you have one of those lawyers who's telling you, stay at home, even though you can go back to work, chances are the insurance company is very familiar with that lawyer and that law firm. Chances are there's going to be a a, a black mark now on your claim. It's going to get extra scrutiny. And in fact, our guest here, Chris Williams, who's a private investigator, is going to talk about that. I'm going to ask him specifically his experience in dealing with insurance companies on the next segment. I can tell you he's nodding his head very, very strong. Can't wait, right? Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that after a short break, guys, here. one 833 in your corner is the number to reach out. Help at inyourcorner.ca. And Chris Williams is coming up. We'll be right back. Lots more in your corner right here on Global News Radio. one 833 in your corner Help at inyourcorner.ca. The show runs, of course, Global TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 as well. He is the president and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services Limited, CPIS. Chris Williams joins the show for a... 
the inside look of uh, of your business. We've we've been talking about this for months, and finally we, we, we have talk them, about right? A we ton, got a ton of private investigation yep. issues, and now we have someone who does this for a living who can dispel some myths and you know really speak to people out there and tell them from his perspective his interactions with insurance companies and what he sees on a daily basis, and also what limitations there are on private investigators when they are looking at claims and investigating claims. All right, Magnum, tell us what it's all about. <laughs> well, first of all, your background, Chris. Well, I've, I've been licensed since uh, 1996. I've worked for a couple of different firms, and I uh, purchased a firm in 2017. Uh, in between the time I worked in media, uh, I did a lot of um, television investigative programming, uh, and I tell clients, you may not have hired me, but you've probably seen my work. So really, uh-huh. this was going back to my roots and sort of expanding on my experience that I, I gained in media. Uh, but I've had a, I've done investigations for approximately 22 years. Uh, our firm is based in Cambridge. We service uh, all of Ontario, and we work for insurance companies. I'm sorry, uh, we work <laughs> for, we do files for in, employers uh, that have WSIB issues, sure. uh, corporate intelligence gathering, copyright, brand protection, that kind of thing. That's sort of what we do. Okay, Chris. Well, let me just launch into it, and let's, let, let you know. Let me ask you this. Um, when, when you're dealing with insurance companies mm-hmm. and you have an interaction with them, they're calling you up, what are they asking you to do? Well, they call it an activities check. Uh, it's really a very clinical thing. Really, what they want to see is if what the insurance claimant is claiming is what they're displaying, pure and simple. Uh, and I'll tell anybody that will listen, as long as what you say is what you display, the insurance company will not have a, have a problem. Mm-hmm. So if you are staying within your functional assessments, um, you won't really have an issue. Uh, if you are grossly exceeding those on a repeated, uh, you know, demonstrable basis, that's when the red flags go up. That's when the insurance companies will have a, an issue. Um, if somebody says they can only walk, you know, five minutes or so, and we catch them going on a hike for two, three, four, five kilometers, those are incongruencies that they have, they, they will have an issue with that. That will possibly affect the nature and uh, success of one's claim. Chris Williams uh, joins us here. If you're just joining our show, the president and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services Limited, Savannah. Uh, yeah, James, you had a question. Sure. Well, I, I gather when we're talking about physical injuries, it's probably more <clears throat> of a precise thing that you're looking for. They'll, you'll usually get, I imagine, some uh, advice about what it is in particular that their impairments might be. But I'm curious what the, what the difference is in particular when you're looking at a psychological issue. Um, depending on the insurance company, we may get anything from entire functional assessments or uh, some firms will say uh, injury to left leg. So it could be very small or it could be very specific. The difference between a psychological injury as opposed to a physical injury um, what we'd be looking for is increased social interaction because one of the first things with depression, anxiety, any of those, uh, th- those mental issues, one of the first things would be is withdrawal from your daily things that you enjoy doing. So if we, so what the focus would shift, so if, if they're carrying groceries or they're carrying, you know, bags of sod up their driveway, we're not really concerned about that. If we see them going out, um, consistently um, engaging with friends, doing things that they said they've essentially withdrawn from. Those would be the things that we'd be looking for. But again, when I say looking for, we're not really looking for it. We're there. We're going to document what's there in a very uh, analytical 
non-judgmental way. We we document what is there and what is put before us by the by the claimant. And it might it might or may not be useful in any Absolutely. regard for the insurance company. Absolutely. You're, just, you're just documenting, right? We're we're there to document yeah. to the best of our ability in an ethical manner and provide a report to the uh, insurer or the mm-hmm. employer. So you, look, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, do you ever ask for clarification or additional information if, for example, you know, you get just something that says, you know, bad leg or something that's kind of vague? Um, we have to be very mindful. I mean, we're covered by PEPIDA. Um, so one of which the things is? we ha- uh, Sorry, it's, which it's is? a privacy legislation, essentially. Okay. So really, it's, it's, it's a huge thing have the minimal amount of information you need to perform the task. Uh, Some companies are very protective of patient and client confidentiality. In many cases, we will just get uh, soft tissue injury to the knee or uh, shoulder separation or whatever the case may be, or, uh, you know, head and neck injury as a result of motor vehicle collision. So sometimes we'll get very specific information with clear functional assessments, and other times it'll be very vague. And if the client doesn't provide it, I, I generally won't ask because if, if they, they're going to give us all the information that they think we need to do the job, we're not going to push them on yeah, that Yeah, it's their job to assess what, you've, what you've taped or, or got on recording, Agreed. right? What, I, I, what it is, what it is. Yeah. Yep. yeah, absolutely. Now, do insurance companies actually give you more specific instructions? In other words, they may say, listen, we want you to just go and check this person, uh, surveil them. And by the way, let's talk about what that means okay. exactly. What are the limitations of where you can go, where you can't go? Do you just photograph? Do you do video? Do you do social media searches? What do you do? Uh, and so, so that's one part of the question. Sure. And the second part of the question is, in terms of the instructions from the insurance company, is it just as simple as go ahead, uh, survey them for the next three days and then give mm-hmm. us a report? Or, or do they give you specific instructions as to what they want to, to potentially see or what they're looking for? It depends. If they have specific concerns, like one of the, one of the times that we will do surveillance uh, would be an, uh, an insurance company suspects there may be secondary employment. Um, so somebody may be on long-term disability, but they're working cash at their brother-in-law's store or something like that. Right. Then we'll get specific instructions. They'll say, look, we've got a tip that uh, so-and-so is, has secondary employment, which would you know, contravene the claim, obviously. So in that case, we'll get specific instructions. A typical surveillance would be anywhere from two to five days initially. Um, and it would really depend on sort of the type of work that they may be doing. Um, it... it and as for the social media aspect, social media is absolutely uh, the starting block of any investigation. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we have a team at our, our firm. Before we go out on the road, we are checking social media. You're, absolutely. You're Googling individuals. Absolutely. And you're going on whether it's Instagram yes. or Facebook. Okay. And I would recommend, uh, I'll get some flack on this, but I, I mean, anyone, you know, any lawyer will probably recommend to a, cli- uh, to a client this. You maybe need to go dark during the period yeah, of your- Yeah, take it um, easy. Your, uh, yeah. your claim process. Yeah. We'll get to more. Chris uh, Williams is here, our private investigator, giving you the uh, the inside look of the other side that we often talk about, but don't get into detail as much. We are right now. In the meantime, the number is one in your corner. Help at inyourcorner.ca. This is In Your Corner, Global News Radio. one in your corner is the number to reach us. Savannah James, member of the team, help at inyourcorner.ca. And if you haven't caught it uh, yet, Global TV happens Sunday mornings in your corner on your television at 8.30 a.m. Chris uh, Williams is here, our private investigator from CPIS, talking about the uh, the inside scoop of private investigating. Fascinating stuff. Uh, James, what do you got, pal? Well, Chris, in the last segment, uh, you mentioned that initially you would typically do surveillance for two to five days. Um, and that would be, I guess, the initial order from your client. Mm-hmm. 
How often will you increase that? And is it typically you asking for additional time? Or is it more of a discussion between you and your client about where you're at and what you might get from additional time? It, it depends. If, if we're getting things that are um, contradictory to what is expected based on the injury, uh, invariably a client will ask for more surveillance. They'll review what we have, um, you know, clearly review what we have, the video, see if it matches with the functional assessments. And if they are grossly exceeding that, then additional surveillance is kind of baked in the pie. I mean, some of these claims can go on for, for many periods of time. And I've had files, LTD files, that, uh, I mean, I worked on them for over two, three years. Right. So that, that does happen. And accident benefits from vehicles can exceed that significantly. So yes, uh, it, it's not uncommon to work on a file again and again based on the results of what we're getting. Sure. So those LTD claims have been going on for two or three years. That's not from our office. No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just make that clear. And in no. fact, on, on the point of which law office and which lawyer represents an individual, uh, you and I had a quick chat before the, uh, the, the program began about the fact that insurance companies are very much aware who's representing a certain claimant. Uh, how do they, I mean, what's, what's your knowledge of that and how does that affect the instructions you're potentially getting from the insurer when there is a particular law firm or lawyer representing someone that the insurance company, let's just say, doesn't like? I think w with anything, whether it's your legal counsel or your friends, you are judged by the company you keep. Uh, I, I think there are some lawyers who will, like, as you mentioned in your first segment there, that will instruct a client not to mitigate their claim. Don't go back to work. You, you have to at least try to at least get back to some form of functionality. Um, they know who those lawyers are, and by choosing one that may have that philosophy, uh, I think it would put a claimant up to additional scrutiny, absolutely. Uh, my clients are very diplomatic about what they say, but I have had uh, files from the same law firm on many occasions. Okay. So you are the company you keep. Absolutely. Chris Williams uh, here, uh, by the way, President and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services Limited. So Chris, as a plaintiff's lawyer, whenever I get a file and I see a surveillance report, I'm always going through it. And of course, I want to know substantively <clears throat> what you found. But I'm always going through it and thinking, well, what would happen if we wound up in court? And I was cross-examining this investigator, and I'm taking a look at the language that they use. You know, if there's a lot of adjectives, I'm going to try and play that up in court as though the investigator is perhaps biased and trying to reach a particular conclusion. My question for you is, what steps do you take to try and prevent the bias or even the appearance of bias when you're investigating and drafting your reports? Um, with me, my reports and my staff are very clinical. Uh, I'm not going to say things that uh, somebody is moving in a smooth and fluid manner. That used to be very common in, in, in some surveillance reports. Um, I'm not a kinesiologist. I'm not a doctor. That is beyond the purview of what smooth and fluid is. Uh, I can tell you if somebody is opening a car door with their left hand, I'm not going to comment on whether they're doing it quickly, smooth, fluid, mm. or without hesitation. So you will never see something of that nature in any report I put out. I say they opened the car door with their left hand. I mention the left hand because it was a left hand injury, sure. but I'm not going to, um, you know, put my two cents into how they're moving their hand. It's, it's beyond the purview. Yeah, you don't editorialize, you just give the, give the facts. Just the yeah. facts, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, I've had, Chris, many clients, not many clients, but some clients who have been surveyed and the clients uh, are, are attuned to it mm-hmm. and they call me concerned and they're saying, listen, there's a car in my <coughs> drive, not in my driveway, but just outside across the street. <laughs> Be the worst investigator <laughs> There's a yes. guy actually, my couch. <laughs> we should actually, let's make that clear. There are boundaries. You're not allowed to interact with individuals that you are surveying, right? Absolutely not. Uh, if somebody is, is a represented uh, uh, claimant you know, even if they had a business that they were clearly operating, we couldn't go in there and interact with them. We could go in, but we'd almost have to ignore them. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're very, very cognizant of that. Uh, I mean, if somebody is setting up two doors down uh, from uh, the residence, uh, they probably shouldn't be doing the job anymore. Typically, you know, without going into too much detail, I just need to be far enough away where I can see the vehicle leave or the person leave on foot uh, where they're not going to really see me. But uh, there's nothing to worry about. I mean, it's a regulated profession. There's a criminal background check. Um, but again, you know, that's an example of probably the sh- some issue in the industry. Um, there's a lot of very poor practitioners out there and causing alarm to uh, a claimant or their family or their neighbors is unprofessional. We'll, uh, we'll take a short break, guys. Chris is going to stick around with us. One eight three three in your corner. Help at inyourcorner.ca as well. Lots more on the way. Stick around right here in your corner. Global News Radio. In your corner. One eight three three in your corner. Help at inyourcorner.ca. And the television program happens in your corner on Global TV Sunday mornings at eight thirty. The uh, president and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services Limited, Chris Williams, uh, is still with us for the uh, the third segment. This stuff's just uh, just too cool and too interesting to let him go anytime soon. So, Savannah. You got some more questions, yeah? Yeah, Chris, let me ask you this. Uh, and you may not want to reveal this, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. What do private investigators do that you know, perhaps not you and your team, but others, that can really undermine their work? Uh, I think any time where you um, essentially cause somebody to do something they wouldn't normally do, uh, either by you being visible or you by you being noticed, or by being visible or noticed, you prevent them from doing something. The whole key to successful surveillance is to be invisible and let things unfold as they would and not to sort of color activity by uh, our actions. We're supposed to just be the fly on the wall there. And it takes a very long time to be proficient at that. Um, so I, I think what investigators do is is they may be a little too aggressive in some cases. Um, because the thing is, with um, with a lot of investigators, it, it's very tough. You go out at 8 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the morning, and you lose somebody at 10 o'clock. Well, you were banking on a whole day. Uh, it's different in my position, you know, as the owner of a company. I don't sort of have those financial demands, but I'm very well aware of an investigator that may have got up at 5, 6 in the morning. They lose someone at 8 o'clock in the morning. That's a tough thing. So they wow, may right. be over-aggressive. And over-aggressive often leads to getting burnt where your presence is known. And with me, I would rather just lose somebody, come back another day than, you know, get burnt and it's 10 times tougher to to follow someone again. And you may have to get two or three different people at the same time. Cost prohibitive. And and what do you do in situations where you are surveying someone and you can clearly see that uh, they are impaired in the way that has been described in some of the documentation or descriptions you've been given. Do you, do you report that back to the insurance company? Absolutely. Does that, but do you report that orally or does that make that into a report? What do you, what do you do? Well, again, in keeping with our um, 
observations not to add commentary. Uh, if I was in the field and I saw somebody who was, um, you know, clearly using medical aids, clearly had an obvious impairment, I would let the client know. And in, uh, and in some cases they would say, that's kind of what we expect. It's a big dollar claim. We just have to take a look because they've got, you know, performance indices where if it's over a certain value, there has to be a period of surveillance that's incorporated into the claims process. So sometimes it's automatic. Sometimes with, with certain high value claims, they do need to take a look at somebody. And we have just confirmed what they, pro and I've had clients say, yeah, we, we, we kind of suspected that. Thank you. And I, I think it's just the ethical thing to do. And in some cases, they may say, well, just run out the rest of the budget. That's fine. We appreciate mm -hmm. that. But I think if you've got somebody that is clearly, uh, I've had some people that clearly a severe level of impairment. Um, could it be faked? Possibly. But I think at this point, I'm a pretty good judge of that. But I would let the client know right away. It's the ethical thing to do. Again, Absolutely. Chris Williams, President and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services, uh, is joining us for the third segment of, uh, of In Your Corner. You know, you mentioned a, a segment or two ago, 22 years you've been doing this. Now, social media is relatively new compared to that length of time. How mm -hmm. much easier or more difficult has it made your job? Um, good and bad. Uh, I mean, I think most lawyers are saying, hey, cool it down. No vacation pics, no tobogganing. And, 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 you know, that's probably very sage advice. I would recommend somebody who's in the claims process, go dark. Uh, I've had yeah. some phenomenal successes where we found that somebody has, you know, additional uh, undisclosed income or additional undisclosed uh, employment. That's huge. Um, you know, we found they're going on vacations when, you know, they said that they're not able to leave the home. Uh, you know, you can really come up with some great information. It's so easy because everybody right away, boom, on Instagram it, it goes, is. on Facebook it, it goes, is. right? They just it's, share everything. It's um, an, an age thing. I mean, with, yeah, right. it's an age thing. I mean, if you've got somebody in their 70s, you know, you might get a Facebook thing. Once it a really month. depends. <laughs> yeah, it, it really depends. But, you know, I've, I've located people, you know, uh, that have had to serve up here. Uh, simply because I found out where their vacation property was, and that was off social media. One thing I just want to come back to um, before you're done here, one of the first things that you mentioned when we started today is that really no one has anything to worry about in terms of surveillance as long as what they're doing is in line with what they're telling people. And it's funny because I'll tell you, Chris, if you listen to this show, that's something I say almost every week. Because I have clients that come to me and they're concerned about surveillance. What happens if there's an investigator? And I always tell them almost exactly that. I say, well, it doesn't really matter. As long as you're doing what your doctors have told you you can do, and when you're asked questions, you tell the truth, if they see you going to the pool and your doctor has said you can go to the pool and you've told on examination that you can go to the pool, it's no better than having a video of you eating a ham sandwich. It makes absolutely no difference at all. So I appreciate that perspective because it really confirms from the other side exactly what we're saying on this show every week. Except that uh, you've had cases and I've had cases where insurance companies, despite the fact that the surveillance is innocuous and it doesn't show anything and in fact sometimes even supports the person's claim for disability, insurance companies will turn it around and use it to, to gaslight, to tell you, no, no, look, this surveillance is actually showing you're not disabled, that you're lying. And you've had one recently, right? With sure. the teacher, the Julie with Julie Austin, Austin exactly. Yeah. And in fact, her own union, when they got a hold of that surveillance or the reports, 
without even examining it the way that you did, told her, yeah, we can't help you. I don't want to put Chris on the spot for that, though, because that, was, <laughs> that wasn't the fault of the surveillance, no, but, but what of I'm the investigator there. People, that was the fault of the insurance company. In the but UK. that's my point. My point yeah. is that people are concerned, even if they're doing everything right, because the insurance company is going to use that or at least try to use that to, to bully them and, and, and to just get them off, to shake them off claim. That's true. But in this particular case, and I think we're going on a bit of a tangent, but you know what, what you have to be concerned of there isn't the investigator, it's the insurance company. Because the insurance company in those situations are just looking for any excuse. And the tool they happen to be using in that particular instance is an investigator doing surveillance. But if it wasn't that, it would be something else. No, I agree with you. What I'm <laughs> saying is that the fact that they're being surveyed, the fact that they're being surveyed, that's what concerns them. Not so much that they're lying or anything like that. Uh, now, Chris, when you said that you're not allowed to interact with the individual himself or herself, mm-hmm. are you allowed to interact uh, with family members or friends? Are you allowed to call up a place of business and ask about an individual? It, it really depends on the, the nature. I mean, there are some times, I mean, where you, you would do a pretext to find out if somebody is working. Um, it, it does happen. It does happen. But generally, as a rule, uh, with a, a represented client, that's not something we would do. Um, and again, there's really no reason to do it because you want to find out what's going on, go sit out there for a day or two. Right. If they're working, it'll be revealed. We're going to wrap it up. Got to thank Chris Williams from uh, Wall of President and CEO of Canadian Private Investigation Services Limited. How do they uh, how do they get a hold of you, Chris? Uh, you can reach us at one eight seven seven. 405-3389. And cpis.ca, That's correct? correct? Yeah. All right. Chris Williams, thank you very much. We'll have you back in the show at Wonderful. a later thank date you. for sure. It's been fantastic. Lots more In Your Corner is on the way. Stand by. We'll get to that right here. Global News Radio. In Your Corner, we are right back at it. Thanking uh, Chris Williams again, private investigator, cpis.ca, if you want to get a hold of. Uh, guys, one of the things we wanted to cover in the last uh, few minutes, last couple segments of the show, the top three things you should absolutely not tell your adjuster. Why is this so important before we get into it? Well, it's very important because, you know, what you tell your adjuster is going to be memorialized in their right. notes, which means yeah. that if they cut you off and we start a legal claim, you know, they're going to display their notes. If you have any notes, if you've confirmed anything by email, that's going to come up. So you want to make sure that what you tell them, first of all, is the truth. And number two, that, you know, you confirm that in writing with them so that they can't say, oh, you said this, and that's not in fact the case. Right. So very, very important to make sure that everyone knows exactly who said what. I want to get to the first one, guys, and that is number one of the top three things you should not tell your adjuster that you're you're, you're feeling better than you really do, not in the moment, but in general, because we, we do that. We tend to say, oh, I'm okay. So right. I, there's a couple points I really want to make about this. The first one is, I mean, this is a pretty straightforward piece of advice. Don't be a hero. Right. Don't exaggerate your symptoms either. Just tell it like it is. If you are having a bad day, say that. If you're having a good day, that's fine too, but put it in context. Say, well, today's not bad, but the last week has been, you know, pretty bad. And so it's, you know, it's hard to really say. Make sure that you're just being accurate in how you're describing exactly what's going on. But you really need to be even more careful than that because some adjusters, not all, but some adjusters will try to be particularly friendly. Some, in fact, very well may be friendly. But in any case, a lot of them will try and foster a friendly, cordial relationship with the claimants. And part of that purpose is to get you to reveal things that you might not otherwise reveal. Um, But another thing is, as we've just said, they're going to memorialize everything that you say, and they'll try and use it against you. So even be careful in your greeting. A lot of times people will be very cavalier in how they respond to a greeting. Hey, how you doing? Oh, great. How are you doing? Oops. No. No. Hey, how you doing? 
That is a question that is going to be recorded. If you say you're doing great, that will be in the file. I guarantee you, if you say I'm doing great, that's going to be recorded, and and they'll try and use it against you if if you can. So it's not just a conversation with your buddy. This is business for them, and this is your benefits for you. So be careful how you answer every question. Number two, the uh, top three things you should absolutely not tell your adjuster, that is you're not complying with treatments because, well, you've simply given up. Right, and this is something that does come up. Not the idea that you've just given up, but that you're not complying. And, you know, there could be many reasons for that. Perhaps you're being told to take a certain medication that's making you ill. Perhaps you've tried a certain physio course and that's not working for you and you're working with your therapist on something else. But again, context is important. And if there is any uh, hint that you are simply giving up or not trying, then in effect, you are breaching your obligations under the agreement. Remember, the law requires you to mitigate. What does that mean? It means trying to lessen your injury or trying to lessen your losses. The way you do that in the context of LTD or any injury claim is following uh, the medical recommendations of your your doctor, your chiropractor, psychologist, whoever it is that's treating you. So it's very important that when you speak with your adjuster and they're inquiring about uh, your, your treatments and how these things are going, are you taking your medications, are you doing what your doctors are saying, if you're not complying or if you're not doing or if you've missed any appointments, again, context is important. And I would even stress that If, in fact, you are touching on the subject in the conversation, it's even more important than in other instances to memorialize those conversations, to actually write the adjuster saying, hey, by the way, you know, just following up on our conversation of a few minutes ago, uh, you know, I'm absolutely clear. I spoke with my psychologist and they agree that this is not something I should be doing right now. So you want to make sure that there is uh, a a, a recording in writing of exactly why it is that you're non-compliant. And you definitely, definitely, definitely do not want to tell the adjuster that you've given up. As soon as you say that, I'm telling you, probably the next day or the next week or the next month, you're going to get a letter saying they're going to terminate your benefits. I, I, I actually would take it a step further. Um, if you are, if you have treatment sessions, if you're getting physiotherapy, for example, or psychological counseling, and you have to miss a session, um, especially if it's something that your insurance company has taken a particular interest in, if you miss a session for a particular reason, I would be proactive and tell your adjuster that you missed it and memorialize the reason ahead of time. If you do it, if you do it the roundabout way, and they find out about it, and then they come to ask you, it's going to sound like it's just a made-up excuse to begin with, and it's going to be harder for you to document it. So, let's say, for example, there's a really bad snowstorm, as happens from time to time in these parts, and you're just not able to get out of the house. That'll happen a couple times a year. If that does happen, make sure you memorialize it right away, because if people see that and they, oh yeah, there was just this huge storm. That makes sense. They'll understand. If a month and a half later they see that you missed this session, they're not going to remember what days it was there. And they're probably not going to be so interested that they're going to look up on the historical weather reports what days the storms were. And so they're probably not going to believe you. But if you do it proactively, you're ahead of the game. I would actually add to that and even say that if you're being proactive, then in instances where, again, if you're not taking medications because uh, they're making you ill and there's something else you're going to be taking, or if you can't do certain treatments, 
that in fact your your doctor or whoever whoever's treating you uh, uh, provides some kind of a letter that actually talks about you know your treatment to date and what it is that they recommend that you do because for whatever reason and they can document that reason this is not working for you. So again, there are different ways of being proactive. It all depends on the extent of the non-compliance. The one thing you don't want to do again, I'll stress it: you do not want the adjuster to think or to have any indication that you have just given up and that you know, you're no longer trying to get better, especially when in the vast majority of instances when people are non-compliant, that is in fact not the reason. But the insurance companies will use that to cut you off. So you have to make sure that you, you, you know, take you know, proper precautions to, to, to insulate against that. We're talking the top three things you should absolutely not tell your adjuster. Number three is coming up. After a short break, so stick around for one eight three three in your corner and help at inyourcorner.ca. This is in your corner on Global News Radio. One eight three three in your corner is the number to get a hold of James or a Savan, member of the team as well. Help at inyourcorner.ca and the Global TV show happens in your corner on Sunday mornings at eight thirty as well. Before the break, we were talking about the top three things you should absolutely not tell your adjuster, and the third and final one is that uh, you know you think you're ready to go back to work when your doctor, your doctor advises you that you. Should should not. So this is really important because you have to make sure that you and your doctors are in sync. If you tell the insurance company that you're ready to go back to work and your doctors are saying that you're not, guess who the insurance company is going to favor? They're going to favor the story or the version that best helps them. And that is your story. If you think you can go back, they're going to tell you, okay, fine, go back. And even if you have second thoughts later, they may end up coming back and saying, well, hold on for a second. You said you're ready to go back. They're no longer going to put that much weight on what the doctor is saying. So again, you want to make sure that you, know, you, you listen to your doctor. And that's the, that's the other point, incidentally. If your doctors are telling you you can't go back to work, heed their advice. I've seen it countless times when people, you know, good people have tried to go back to work for a variety of reasons. You know, they need the money, uh, they have obligations, they, they have to try to go back to work because, you know, they need to pay bills, they, you know, they need to pay for their kids' expenses, etc. But their doctors are telling them, you cannot go back to work. And so what happens? They go back to work, they try to go back, they now fail, and now they have some issues with the insurance company who says, well, why can't you, you know, just, you know, uh, continue working? You know, there is no reason why you can't work. So you've given now something to the insurance company to use against you, especially when your doctors have said from the outset that you're not able to go back to work. So listen to your doctors, be in sync with your doctors, have a conversation with your doctors before you speak with the insurance company about returning back to work. You know what, the firm and emails, I know you guys still get, and I know James has talked about this and Paschal is a term, total disability. You know, can you please just define it? I mean, is it, is it something where you have to be in a, a complete coma or a quadriplegic to be qualified for LTD? Absolutely not. And if we're talking about this in the long-term disability context, it should have air quotes around it, or if it's on paper, actual quotations around it. And the reason for that is because total disability is a very explicitly defined term. It is not what you might think of it, uh, you know, if you were to say it in normal conversation. If I were just talking to someone and, you know, said, oh, you know, I have this acquaintance who is totally disabled, that conjures up an image of somebody who can't do anything for themselves. But if we're talking about long-term disability, it does not mean that. It means what is defined in the policy, and that is very simply, in the first two years that you're able to receive benefits, it means you're not able to return to the occupation that you had at the time you became disabled. After those two years, it means you're not able to return to any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. 
That is what it means, no more, no less. It's got nothing to do with a total inability to live your life hmm. or you know the inability to perform self-care tasks or anything like that. All it has to do with is your ability to work. And it changes slightly after two years, but it's not a very complicated uh, term once you understand what it means. Now, why do they use the term total disability, John? Well, because when people hear that, it does conjure up an image of something more. Yeah, that's not me. Right. And so mm. when they're denying benefits or they're cutting off your benefits and they say you don't meet the definition of total disability, a lot of people are going to say, well, yeah, I guess that's right. I, I guess I'm not totally disabled. I mean, I'm able to get out of bed and you know I can bathe myself and I can cook for myself. So maybe I'm not totally disabled. No. No, when we're talking about disability benefits, all it has to do with is your ability to work. You know, and, and circling back to the beginning of the show, uh, you know, I, I want to make sure people understand this. Uh, we can help you assess whether or not the insurance company has in fact denied your claim legitimately. Don't simply assume when you get that denial letter or call or email from the insurance company saying you don't qualify for this reason or another reason, don't assume that you don't have a case. Since we've been running this show uh, for, for years now, really, and the TV show since January, you know, John, we've had I've had a lot of people contacting me who have had claims, legitimate claims, uh, years ago, mm -hmm. more than two years ago. Remember, you have two years from the date you were first denied to pursue your legal entitlements against the insurance company. If you were denied more than two years ago, we're going to have a problem recovering money that is right. owed to you. So again, if you're one of those people or you know one of those people who in the last two years was denied long-term disability when they, can, they could not go back to work and their doctors have said they could not go back to work, put them in touch with us. It's going to cost nothing for them to speak with us, for us to look at their documents, and it'll literally take us a few minutes and a phone conversation to tell them if they have a case. Good for another week, fellas, uh, to reach out now that we are uh, done for this show. one in your corner Help at inyourcorner.ca is the email address for James or Savannah. Remember the team. They'll put you in touch. And uh, catch the TV show as well. We do In Your Corner on Global TV. That happens Sunday mornings at 8.30. Till next time, In Your Corner right here on Global News Radio.